0: Let's go to Green Bay, Wisconsin, where Professor Harvey J.K. is standing by. He is the author of the brand new book, Take Hold of Our History Make America Radical Again. It's published by Zero Books. You can also pick up his other great works, such as The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, as well as Thomas Paine and The Promise of America. Harvey J.K. is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Thank you so much. Really. Thank you.
1: No, thank you, David. And, and I'm, I'll tell everyone that David's sort of under the weather over there in New York. I'm out here in Green Bay. And he's given me carte blanche basically to take over the show for the next half hour to 45 minutes or I an think, hour. I think. So we, I
0: talk- how about the next year? You take over. I think my listeners would prefer year, right. if we just <laughs> took the show from but
1: and, and we'll make it a marathon. I just won't yeah. stop talking, you know? So something now you like said that.
0: something that you got the New Republic in the mail. You, yeah. get, you get it delivered yeah, to your home. Yeah, today's New Republic.
1: Yeah, there, yeah. I, 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 I still subscribe to magazines. Remember those yeah. sort of hard copy things? Yes. And uh, so the issue of the New Republic, the January-February issue arrived today. And it's got uh, Joe Biden on the cover, which I thought would make an interesting to read because it's titled Past Master Joe Biden's Throwback Case for the Presidency. But when I opened up the issue, my eyes fell on an article by Thomas Gagan. Is that how they pronounce his name? G E O G H E G A N or Gain. It's an Irish name, obviously. Yeah. Uh, he's from Chicago. And the very first paragraph of it, the article is titled, and I educated fools, why democratic leaders still misunderstand the politics of social class. Now, I'm going to confess, I didn't read the article yet, because I just got home from being out, and it's snowing outside, and I pulled this into the mailbox. But the very first paragraph is a really interesting paragraph, and maybe the first two I could just, I just want to read this first paragraph. So it opens up with, here's a little thought experiment. What would happen if, by a snap of the fingers, white racism in America were to disappear? It might be that the black and Latino working class would be voting for Trump, too. Then we Democrats would have no chance in 2020. We often tell ourselves, quote, oh, we just lost the white working class because of race, unquote. But the truth might be something closer to this. It's only because of race that we have any part of the working class turning out for us at all. So he says, how many of us in the party's new postgraduate leadership cast have even a single friendship? a real one of two equals with any man or woman who is just a high school graduate. It's hard to imagine any Democrat in either House or Senate who did not go beyond a high school diploma. And no, I'm not talking about Harvard dropouts, Bill Gates. and anyhow, I don't know the full context of the article. I don't know if it's an article that basically plays on Tom Frank's... Um,
0: listen uh, liberal. Book. Yeah.
1: Right, listen liberal, yeah. and it's just going to go on to how, you know, sort of... Meritocracy and educated elites are now the the ruling class, not only in the Democratic Party but in America. Or if this is actually going to get to the heart of the question of class, and in many ways it doesn't matter. But what is interesting is that he he sort of turned inside out this question of you know class versus identity politics, and basically it's it's the what what one must derive from this is just how ineffective Democrats have been these past 45 years in holding to their historic not just historic base but their historic tradition of FDR and the labor movement of the 1930s. And so we've seen not just this retreat from the FDR tradition from them by Democrats over these past 45 years, but in their retreat they've left open the door to Republicans, right-wingers, reactionaries, the corporate elite, the capitalists, however you want to call them, to basically pursue uh, an all but unanswered class war from above for the past 45 years. And then David, as I'll tell everyone, I had said to David there are a couple of other things I really wanted to talk about. I think these are all all intersecting with each other. So my my wife said to me, had I had I seen this article back in mid-December by Henry Paulson, who you will recall was the Secretary of the Treasury from 2006 to 2009, basically oversaw the making of the great recession or, you know, what was a depression to many people. And Chester, and not, what's his name, Erskine Bowles, who I assume is either the son or the grandson of Chester Bowles, who was a prominent figure in the FDR Democratic administration regarding, I guess it was in charge of the Office of Price Administration. He later wrote the 1960 Democratic Party platform that was very liberal, I want to point out, uh, so liberal that they weren't sure of John Kennedy himself could even endorse the platform he was elected to represent. So anyway, you know, and then I'll also remind people that Bowles himself, the son of or grandson of the man I just referred to, he co chaired that uh commission. I forget the name of the other guy. Do you remember the name of the other guy? Yeah, it was the guy basically. from
0: uh Idaho, Simpson Bowles.
1: Yeah, right. And that was that, that otherwise known as the what we I we
0: gotta get our budget and yeah, we have to Yeah, National Commission
1: on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform of 2010, which was basically the means by which uh, Obama felt felt compelled or or propelled to basically put everything on the table in 2011, which fortunately the Republicans didn't quite take up immediately. But the point is that this is a guy who represents, really does represent the neoliberal uh, corporate. A view of the world within the Democratic Party, and Paulson, of course, is a Republican who pretty accurately represents probably the views of Wall Street. Is that a fair? Would you would you say he yes came to, that, to us from
0: he came to us from Goldman Sachs, Paulson? Right. He, he was the right. Treasury yeah. Secretary and gave and, us TARP under Bush and
1: yeah. And and so these two men, Paulson and Bowles, co-authored this opinion piece in the New York Times. I, you know, I mean, it, it's there's nothing surprising about it necessarily. It's just more the case of how audacious the rich will never cease to be, right? Um, or at least how utterly, how utterly contemptible we might even say at times they are. Um, they wrote a piece in uh, that the Times titled "How to Get Americans to Love Capitalism Again," and they wanted to call attention to a group that they helped organize at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute once upon a time was a kind of liberal sort of gathering place for the for the rich and the, and the well educated it's now overwhelmingly sort of rich people who like to think of themselves as enlightened and they've organized right. the Aspen Economic Strategy Group and they wrote this they wrote this thesis I'll just cite a few things in it american capitalism they open up is at a serious inflection point many americans including the two of us are alarmed by enormous levels of inequality and by declining economic mobility now If they're concerned about this, where the fuck have they been for all of these years, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, probably they just literally are afraid now. They're afraid because you've got not only Bernie Sanders as a Democratic Socialist or Social Democrat, but you've also got Elizabeth Warren as a progressive who should probably call herself a Social Democrat, too, calling for major, major transformations in America that would involve seriously taxing the very rich. That would involve giving greater voice and power to working people. That would involve regulating economic activity in a way as to guarantee that the gross inequalities that have come to exist after these 45 years are not only addressed but don't necessarily reemerge. And so this is an article that I can't help but imagine. This is a column that was written and a whole, by the way, I went to check out the report that they hype in this piece. It turns out it's a 252 page report. And what, and it's basically an attack on, and this will segue into the next thing I want to talk about, an attack on not only the Warren and Sanders approach to how to address inequality and corporate power and concentration of wealth, it's also an attack on uh, Andrew Yang's UBI, Universal Basic, Basic Income idea. And, and it would be interesting... On its own as a representation of the thinking of the rich, but they go on to point out. This is where it gets to me, sort of tragic comic. They lay out what they think of are certain essential steps that need to be taken to address inequality and declining economic mobility and concentrations of power. Well, are you ready for this one? Mm-hmm. So, and this, this is. This, I swear to God, this is this is like so so old as, a, as an argument that it's literally insulting to our intelligence. They say first we must aggressively invest in our human capital. By the way, if anybody tells you about human capital, ask them why the fuck they think of humanity as human capital. Then that starts with ad- and they say that starts with addressing the supply side of the education market. Including investments in community colleges to provide more students the option to obtain a high-quality education and complete their degree. they don't even mentioned the unbelievably gross indebtedness of young people as a consequence of higher ed. And you'd think that it, on those grounds alone, they might have said, "And we need to make public higher education free," as I believe Bernie Sanders has already done. Right? Yes. Okay. I mean, it's this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just just outrageous. What kind of world are they living in? But, by the way, it goes along very well, maybe, with the cover story of the of the New Republic, which, as I said, has got Joe Biden on the cover. And, by the way, he looks kind of nice on the cover here. He's, he doesn't look as, not quite as pasty-faced as he often looks when he goes on TV. Past master Joe Biden's throwback case for the presidency. So we've got all these kind of throwback arguments. The, the rich and the, and the elite, they, they, they must be... They must be really anxious. We must be doing something right, those of us who would support Bernie, and for that matter, Elizabeth Warren, right? Yeah. Wouldn't yeah. you say? Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow. But A- now, Paulson,
0: those, but, Hank Paulson yeah. gave us toxic asset relief program. They injected roughly $800 billion into the five banks that were going under, forced the mm-hmm. banks to take $700 billion of our money to rescue capitalism. What yeah, does he say right. about forgiving the debt of the kids with student loans?
1: Yeah, I'd like to know that. In fact, no, no reference so they, to that
0: in the article.
1: No, no, let's say it goes on to talk about the un, addressing the underlying factors that contribute to inequality. So here, here you go. Here are two things that they recommend, which, by the way, is guaranteed to cost us all the more, because who the fuck pays the taxes in this country unless we start doing something about the, the gross inequality? He says, by encouraging work, we have to encourage work by supplementing the wages of low and middle American incomes, such as expanding the Earned Income Tax Credit or enacting a wage subsidy program. So, in other words, now we're going to give tax money to the likes of Walmart directly. So, in, you know, so instead of the fact that we're, we have the Earned Income Tax Credit and we have food stamps and other programs that have always supplemented the riches of the Walton family, right? That's the uh-huh. Walmart corporation now we're going to start we're going to literally maybe walmart maybe we'll subsidize the wages of workers at walmart right explain so that for, for a second
0: so you slow down because it's a little complicated yeah, and most americans I'm don't und- just, it no, no no, no it's whole, fantastic about it's fantastic but i think we need to explain for my benefit what the earned income tax credit is and when you what that means when you subsidize the working poor what who that really? Who you're yeah, okay. really subsidizing?
1: Okay, the Peel un- that income back. tax Yeah. Well, most importantly, at this point, we should talk about what what these two things mean together. Okay, because here's the thing. So Walmart. We first of all, let's face the fact that our public policy, that has been dominated by conservatives, reactionaries, and neoliberals, has kept the minimum wage basically at a rate that makes it literally a deadly wage. Okay, try to live on what is it now? Seven I don't even know the exact number, somewhere seven something, right? Right.
0: Less than seven okay. fifty. Less than seven fifty an Right.
1: Yeah, it's like seven and a quarter, whatever. Right. It hasn't gone up in, in years, okay? And I'll remind everyone that the first time a minimum wage was enacted in this country as part of the National Industrial Recovery Act of Franklin Roosevelt in nineteen thirty three, Roosevelt himself said, you know, essentially what he said, and I'll give you the exact words in a moment, he said you know, a minimum wage is is ridiculous. He said, "No." And now I'm going to quote him specifically. No corporation should be allowed to operate in the United States that does not pay a living wage. Okay. So even then, when he enact, when he signed into law the National Industrial Recovery Act and later the Fair Labor Standards Act, the idea, and that was in 1938, the idea was that these were just first steps towards demanding for all working people, a living wage and not mm-hmm. simply a minimum wage. So, so, okay, so obviously companies like Walmart and others have been doing great because they pay very low wages, but you'd say, well, how do they get away with it? How could workers possibly come to work on that? Well, the old argument, well, they're all 17-year-olds working their way through high school, or they're just housewives adding money, in, you know, into the pocket, into the, family, into the household income. It's just bullshit, okay? It's the fact that there's a seriously you know, serious adults who, who, are, who are making wages that don't pay enough, and we all know how many single-parent uh, households there are these days, so you can imagine how difficult it is. So if you work at Walmart, you're not only going to work overtime, not to mention they have, they have terrible labor management relations, okay? They're really almost dictatorial. But, but the, here's the other point. They make it by signing up for benefits, such as food stamps. Yes. So in essence, your tax dollars... My tax dollars, because neither you nor I are paying, are making seven and a quarter an hour, okay? our tax dollars goes to, to these, those kinds of things, which in themselves I have no trouble with. It's that those things, such as food stamps and other benefits to the, very, to the working poor, essentially underwrite Walmart and its profits because it enables them to offer wages that are so low.
0: And part of the hiring package, the papers that you get when you sign on to be an associate at Walmart, include an application for food stamps. Here's how to apply for food stamps. Thank
1: you. Thank you for reminding me. That's right. When I... Sometimes the de- when I get riled up, sometimes these these essential details <laughs> leave, get get left behind in my brain somewhere. Yes, yeah, yeah. But it's really it's, it's it's
0: absolutely incredible that they're yes. just that blatant about it. You, you, you welcome, yeah. and, welcome and, to the Walmart family. We don't pay you enough, so here's <laughs> right. an application for food stamps. And the American people, some of us know this, and we we accept it. Oh, okay, we're subsidizing walmart workers
1: yeah so then so and then on top of that god forbid not god forbid well in any case try to try to organize a union at walmart and they're prepared to shut the whole store down rather than to have to recognize the organizing drive and and union and collective bargaining you know they're prepared to do that later in the show
0: uh, later in the show we talk about this that you're not allowed to talk to another associate they have cameras monitoring the Walmart oh, employees, yeah. and if you're having a conversation, they break it up because they're afraid you're going to unionize. I, I want, go, you know, ahead. I haven't go ahead. Been,
1: I, I haven't been in a Walmart. And this is a sidebar to that, that discussion. I haven't, been, I, I haven't been in a Walmart. I, I walked into a Walmart, I think, once, and that would have been like 30 years ago, and didn't buy anything. I was just kind of curious about it because someone told me that at Walmart they had greeters at the door, yes. people who greet you and welcome you, Yes. and they said, isn't that nice? Yeah, you know, right? do they still do that? Do you know? Yeah, if, they if they're Walmart, they're, they
0: they're senior citizens, but it's just a stepping stone for senior citizens until they get into a good college and can <laughs> get a higher paying job.
1: Right. Well, but then of course the real reason they do it isn't to welcome you to the store and you know you know sort of embrace you in any way. It's because there was a study done. This this is a fact. There was a study done that showed if you are greeted at the door. You are less likely to shoplift if that was your intent
2: Ah, how's that. Ah.
1: Yes, it was, used, it was a device, basically a surveillance device. It's like, we see you, okay? We've got cameras up there, but I want you to know that it's human eyes that are seeing you and greeting you. And for a while, in fact, the Walmart model also became the norm at retail chains, not only on that scale, but also... I believe The Gap had it for a while. A lot of the stores that are now in so much trouble, they can't afford to pay anybody to stand at the door, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, so, okay, so the question would be, in response to all of this, is what does this tell us about contemporary politics and what needs to be done? And now I, wanna, I just want to mention to everyone, can I mention an, another show, even though you don't mind if I am Rising, do you? Okay. Of course. So. Uh, so as as David very kindly mentioned, I have a new book out this this season, titled "Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again." So I've been doing a lot. I do David's show more than anybody's, which is a great pleasure. But I do I you know I do a lot of other stuff too. And one of the shows, which is truly a pl- uh, a pleasure to do with with someone I've known for a while, Crystal Ball. The show's called Rising, and it's on Hill TV Live. Right. So just before Christmas, we videotaped. Or is that is still called videotaping? I don't even know what they call it. Recorded a uh, uh, you know, tele a uh, uh, a video of an interview about my book. And so it was a, really a discussion of radical America. And that is from Thomas Paine through all of the movements of the 19th century, up and you know, right through, through time, and, as well as the presidents who I really think we underestimate as radicals, such as Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. So I, she asked me along the way to in contemporary terms, of what is this radical how does this radical tradition play into the 2020 elections? And I pointed out that Bernie Sanders in particular in many ways is is finally come to realize the imperative of grabbing hold or taking hold of the past and reminding Americans of who they are and what we're capable of doing in terms of especially the 1930s New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt, um and also the idea of of pursuing the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom from want. Uh, freedom from fear, and so on. And then, more, most importantly, the Economic Bill of Rights that he pronounced in 1944, which, David, we can go back to, but I'll just finish this up. And so here's the thing. She then asked me, well, what about Andrew Yang? Isn't he reaching back to Thomas Paine in, for the universal basic income? And this is a question that gets posed to me a lot, because my hero and the man I've most identified with probably in historical terms, I mean historiographical terms, is Thomas Paine. And I tell people that there's no question, and he even mentions on his website, Thomas Paine, there's no question that Yang is, is, is rooting the idea of UBI in the American tradition all the way back to Thomas Paine's pamphlet, not common sense, but, but of the 1790s, Agrarian Justice. And in that pamphlet, Thomas Paine said that the earth was created by God for all of us. So if there are those who are monopolizing land ownership... They owe us a tax. They owe us a payment because they're keeping us from having direct access to land. Therefore, they owe us. And those payments, those taxes, should go into a national or community trust. And those monies should be specifically used for two things. First of all, for what we call Social Security. That is when. When men and women reach a certain age of maturity, they should not have to continue working, and the money, the monies that have been accumulated in this trust, should be given to them as old-age pensions or social security. And in fact, Thomas Paine is the godfather of social security. Okay, and the other thing that those monies should be used for is to give every young person, whether boy or girl, man or woman when they reach the age of maturity, 16, 18, 20, whatever it might be, to give them a way to get a start in life. That is, whether you know, education, land ownership, or small business. In other words, to, to fight poverty, you do it not only in terms of Social Security, which really has been a, a, a radical innovation for decades to avoid uh, poverty among the elderly, but also let's, let's avoid poverty at, at, a, at a younger age. Let's give young people at the age of 18 monies to get going, to propel them in, into their futures, into lives of, of work and, and household, uh, setting up a household. So I, I explain to people usually that in many ways you could see the connection between the universal basic income or what's sometimes called a citizen dividend and Payne's original idea. But, but here's the thing. The UBI, under the current circumstances, would probably end up doing just exactly what Paulson and Bowles are suggesting about subsidizing wages, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're giving people a certain, you know, like I think he's talking about $1,000 a month, okay, everyone getting $1,000 a month, what you're doing is you're enabling Walmart all the more to not have to raise their wages for a start, or you're you're empowering landlords, right, to raise their their rents, okay? Now, that's in contrast to Bernie Sanders. Now, Bernie Sanders is very clear about this. And, and, uh, and I think that our best hope for trying to redeem the promise of America is, is by way of a Bernie Sanders campaign and electing as many progressives as possible to Congress to enable Bernie, if and when he's elected president, to pursue these kinds of things. So for Bernie, it's really essential, first of all, that we empower workers anew, okay? That workers, when they on the job, should be empowered to organize unions as a national law. Not, 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 not in some states you have a right to organize, and in other states you don't. It should be the case that workers have the right to organize and bargain collectively. Call it, uh, you know, giving workers a voice in the workplace. Back in the 30s, Franklin Roosevelt and his administration and his generation of political and intellectual figures called it industrial democracy. Bernie calls it, if you look at his website, workers' democracy. That, that's first, Okay. The the other thing which is essential, I should have mentioned it first perhaps, is Medicare for all, right? I mean, clearly, if you're going to empower people, the first way you're going to empower them is by making sure that they have life in order, therefore, to have liberty and be able to pursue happiness. And to have life, you've got to have health care coverage, okay, including dental care and, and, and vision care and all of those things that go along and mental health care for that matter. Okay? And make make America healthier and happier. How's that for a yeah. <laughs> campaign slogan? Yeah. Please? Yeah. Okay. And then I said the workers democracy idea and and a whole host of things that we would necessarily call social democratic. That would be universal, okay, that would put that would enable these things to always be viewed as fundamental to America, just as we view Social Security, because they're u- it's universal upon reaching a certain age. And you know, so and but fundamentally as well, how do we pay for this? Well, national health care basically will turn out to be cheaper to people's in people's po- to people's pocketbooks, less expensive because you're going to cut out the vast health insurance um, uh, rake-off in profits, right? I mean, it's just all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So. Okay, so it, basically it's been on my mind you know, these the last few days as I knew we were going to talk to sort of remind people, remind people that there are many folks out there, very powerful, very rich and influential people who still will not buy into the most fundamental of social democratic initiatives having to do with A, national health care, and B, the right for, of workers to organize, and C creating a radically more progressive income tax structure. How's that?
0: Yes. We're talking with, okay. we're talking with Professor Harvey J.K. He's the author of Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. It's a fun read. It's a series of essays and lectures that Professor Harvey J.K. has delivered the past couple of years. And it's, uh, it's academic, but it's written for the layman and the feldman, as I always say, and Professor Harvey. <laughs> no
1: Harv- footnotes, boys and girls. No footnotes. You don't have to turn to the back of the book. Yes, it's, it's all there. Not a single footnote.
0: Yes, Harvey J. K. is also the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay, where he joins us today. When did welfare? And I don't mean welfare payments, but the welfare of human beings get tied in this country to work. In other words, when we talk of homeless people, we say, well, we've got to get them up on their feet. And once they're up on their feet, they got to get jobs. They can't live off the dole forever. And that if, you know, if you're willing to work, you get an earned income tax credit. But if you're not willing to work, die. When did that become the philosophy here in America, well, it seems to be if you don't work, inherited. you die in this country.
1: Yeah. Well, it's probably inherited from the from our English forebears. You know, and, well, not all of us have the English forebears. I don't, and I, I know you don't either. But it's probably it's probably a consequence of the English tradition, and the English tradition, which involves in some ways individualism, um, capitalism begins in England, and what happened was when they. And it begins in agriculture, by the way, when uh, gentry landowners were going to invest more in actually producing for markets, and they were pushing peasants off the land. And may, it's not to say they didn't hire many of them back in the fo- as agricultural workers, but many of them were driven off the land and driven into towns and cities. And thus we get the name, the word, not the name, but the word pauper. And what do you do? What do you do if you've got these people who are out of work and homeless, well, you you know there's a, there was the attitude in England. Well, you, you put them to work. In fact, in England, they had what they called workhouses. Okay, if you couldn't fend for yourself, then you would you you would be provided work and um, and a place by the state, and you would go into the, the workhouse, which, by the way, was a terrible, 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 terrible kind of place. It was like a prison of for work, uh, you know, for working people. So it goes it it goes back to that. But in this in this country. There was always, a, in fact, in this country, the interesting thing is to turn that on its head and say, when did we finally come to appreciate that if you've worked, you shouldn't have to work all your life? Right. You know? Right. And so, and so in essence, I mean, we view work as, a, as, a, as some people as truly a, you know, don't welcome it. It's a necessary evil. But work, even on the left, in, in, the tradition of the left says that work is a place that we, if, if free work is available, meaning work that we choose to do, that work that we can invest ourselves in, that, that in essence we're expressing part of our humanity, that humanity is not simply a matter of consumption, it's also a matter of production. So indeed, work is a, is a good, okay? It, produce, it produces good, but in itself it's a good. And The problem is that there, that, that kind of idea, when grabbed hold of by you know, reactionaries and others, is to say, if you don't work, you know, then you become possibly um, dangerous. Or evil, because you remember that expression? I hate to do this, but I remember I offered a course one time titled um, Idle Hands of the Devil's Workplace. Mm-hmm. That, remember that? Yeah. Yeah, so it, you can see how, how far back in time that kind of thinking goes. In other words, work keeps you off the street. Work keeps you from having to steal to eat. But what people don't realize is that even if you work in this kind of corporate order that we live in, this gross inequality that prevails, it may well be the case that if you're not being stolen from by the likes of Walmart, that you have to steal from those folks. And of course, if you're caught, you're sent to jail. Thus, we end up with the term mass incarceration, not only for, you know, for, for drug dealers, but also for people who literally threaten property in some way. Is that sort of yeah. around the, the question solution
0: is, in yeah. America to everything is work, that you want health care, it's tied to your job you want food stamps you have to get a job or prove that
2: you're looking for work
1: in terms of the health care that i can give you a very specific uh, uh story about how that came to be okay it wasn't it wasn't necessarily what people wanted it's what basically the corporate folks wanted so here's what happened so back in the 1920s before the great depression Companies became it was called paternalistic capitalism. That is, you know you had you had workers in your in your in your industries or in your factories, in your workplaces, and the idea was that you know if you were going to sustain your workforce you, because the economy was growing, you had to make sure that they were provided certain kinds of things. So there was a bit of an of, of an advance in what we would think of today as benefits, okay? company picnics, right? Uh, maybe even some vacation time, those kinds of things, which, by the way, were never ever the norm in the 19th century. I don't even know if they existed anywhere. So what happened, the Great Depression strikes, and instead of workers feeling like they owe so much to the corporation, they turned on capital. Workers became very class-conscious. They organized labor unions, and as these labor unions grew, the demand increased for such things as, you know, basically the creation of Social Security, um, also the idea of some kind of programs that would guarantee people's, uh, a kind of public health programs and so on. Now, here's what, here's what happens. The American Federation of Labor and the CIA and the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which, will, which basically broke up in the 30s into the two federations and came back together in the 50s, their ambition was not that... Healthcare care benefits would be linked to your work. They actually stood for national health care. They wanted universal health care. Not that they alone, those who were organized, would have these benefits. And then, after World War II, after Roosevelt's death, and Roosevelt had placed the question of health care directly on the public agenda. I think I've mentioned this to your audience before. In 1943, Roosevelt um, arranged for some... Surveys to be done. Wanted to know what did Americans want when the war was over. Do they want to go? Do they want more of the New Deal? What, what exactly would they want? And what he discovered is they wanted everything. There was no question. They did not want to go back to the old ways in the old days. And 85% of Americans wanted national health care. 85%. That included about 75% of Republicans and 95% of Democrats. So Roosevelt felt pretty confident in advancing. what what I mentioned earlier, the Economic Bill of Rights in his January 1944 State of the Union address. And he lays out a whole series of initiatives that we should not only pursue as policies, but we should literally enact a second Bill of Rights guaranteeing economic and social security to Americans. Now, you can imagine that Republicans, and especially the corporate types in this country, were horrified at the prospect of enabling workers, especially in an age in which Southern Democrats were still white supremacists if they, you know, and, and basically hostile even to the idea of sharing health facilities with African Americans. So Northern Republicans who didn't want it, Southern Democrats didn't want it because of its egalitarian and, and threatening racial egalitarianism. But Truman in 46, in fact, maybe even late 45, actually raised the question of national health care. He included the idea of the Economic Bill of Rights as part of his vision for his own you know, presidency. And they mobilized. They mobilized tremendously, these corporate folks and, and the Republicans and the Southern Democrats, to try to block that. Now, labor unions had already been fighting for universal health care, and this is exactly what they wanted. Now, here's how they drove the wedge, you might say, into this movement for national health care. The Republicans won the 1946 congressional elections, which meant that Truman was going to have to deal with the Republicans, just as Obama had to deal with Republicans. Real, and, excuse me
0: for one second. I, I didn't know this. Yeah. The, the Republicans got the House of Representatives in 46?
1: Yeah, in 46, they actually won They won control of Congress.
0: Like Kind of like Clement Attlee. I didn't know that. Clement Attlee drove Winston Churchill out. Labor took over in... Yeah. Great Britain, but well, the opposite right. happened in the United States. Yeah. That's interesting. But
1: but but, but it's quite. Po- I'm going to make an argument, which most historians would probably agree, but they would probably alter it a bit. Okay. Um, th- the fact is that Truman really wasn't ready to be president. Okay, and he just didn't know how to respond to what to the this question of should we contain continue price controls from the wartime through the period of transition to a peacetime economy or not. So he went back and forth. And labor was organized. By the way, there was, there was a general strike in a number of American cities in 1946. Workers wanted, decidedly wanted more social democracy, and they did not want capital to tell them how America should be organized after the war. Now, the problem is that Truman found himself caught in the middle. He was never very much of a social... He was a New Dealer, Truman. There was no doubt about it, but he wasn't exactly Franklin Roosevelt. And even though he had raised the question of national health care and all of these other progressive kinds of things, he really didn't know how to respond to labor unions. Roosevelt had worked with labor unions ever since World War I when he was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and he had to... He was in charge, basically, of, of war production and getting the Navy ready to fail you know, into in, in into war in 1917. So he had worked with unions. He knew how to, if you like, not just handle unions, he knew how to engage unions in, in a cause. So, it, for example, when he ran for president in 1932, Roosevelt actually, in his own way, ended up appealing not only to John L. Lewis, who was the president of the mine workers and was a Republican, he also appealed... As a social, because he never used the term Roosevelt, but he, he clearly came across as a Social Democrat, to hit, hit Sidney Hillman, who was basically an immigrant Jewish socialist who headed the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America. So both the Republican Lewis and the socialist Hillman, they lined up with Roosevelt and would stick with Roosevelt through much of the 1930s. Truman didn't have that kind of experience. He had got, you know, what was he, a haberdasher yeah. in Kansas City? He had been part of a political machine, the pen, Prendergast machine. There, um, he was—he was—he had a lot of integrity, Truman. But he just didn't know how to handle those big kinds of questions and, you know, organize labor effectively to mobilize them behind him. And they came to see him as part of the problem. So in '46, it's not unlikely that millions and millions of workers just didn't just stayed home. Not unlike they did in 1980 when Jimmy Carter ran, having screwed up you know, his, his the relations between Democrats and the labor unions, and he ends up losing to Reagan. Well, fortunately, 46 was a congressional election year. So even though they, they, the Democrats lost the House and Senate for, for a bit, it, they didn't lose the White House. Now, and so health
0: care became linked. All these veterans returned from the war, and instead of getting the health care that they got accustomed to from the military, they were turned over to the health insurance companies and it was tied to their work?
1: Yeah, well, so here's the so, right. It's essentially what happens in the late 1940s. So you've got the AFL pushing for national health care and the CIO. CIO was in, the leading forces in the CIO would have been the steel workers, the auto workers, the rubber workers, you know, basically the makings of the American automobile industry and, and, and the rebuilding of, of the national infrastructure. And then for the AFL, there you're talking mostly... Trades unions, carpenters, plumbers, um, you know, the, the organized cr- skilled workers, plus some others, such as the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was the black labor union led by, the, by A. Philip Randolph. But so the thing is that Avavel was, they were pretty adamant. They did not want health insurance linked to work. The CIO was pretty adamant, too. However, the workers in those industries wanted health care. And the pressure was on for labor to negotiate with the likes of General Motors and others. And I guess it was in 1950. It, it happened small scale. Then, eventually, in 1950, it became the sort of a, a precedent-setting thing. It was called the Treaty of Detroit, where the auto workers really gained the benefits that we later associate with big unionism from the automakers. But that meant that the CIO is is now linking. It's called you know private welfare. The benefits that could have been national benefits are now specifically linked to work. The AFL, however, didn't go there. And through not much of the 50s, the, the, probably the strongest voice on on in labor for national health care in the 1950s would have been the, the trades unions, not the industrial unions. Okay. Right. So it's during that those years of late 40s into the 50s where the norm is established in this country where. You want these benefits, you find a job, and and you, you join the union. The union will get you these benefits. Now, in the 1970s, when war was declared by the corporate powers that be against labor unions because there was a profit squeeze and they wanted to devastate unions in order to raise their own profits and their own bank accounts, Now we've got a, then you get a situation, which you've seen now for these 45 past years, in which workers... In unions, are still making more than others, but unions were broken, industries were closed, the factories were shuttered, um, and it becomes the case that what was, not, was if, if you like, the expectation of workers on their jobs, is really really drastically reduced. So consider it this way: to be an auto worker was to be almost like a labor aristocrat back in the you know 50s, 60s, and 70s. Then all of a sudden, the, you know, the car plants are, are shutting. Um you know the biggest company in America might have been g m at that time, and now it's like Walmart I guess or Apple or one, you know amazon you know' i think, none it's, of them it's, are I organized. think it's the
0: temp uh, organization go ahead
1: yeah so so i mean this this question of of welfare and work or if you like benefits health care, such as health care and work came to really be intimately linked in the late forties into the fifties. When the big corporations were, e- by the way, the corporations were eager to create those kinds of contracts because it gave them greater control over their own workforce. Right. I mean, you know, if, if workers have national health care, we've we heard about these last several years. If there's national health care, workers are, if in a job, even if, if, you know.
0: Take this job benefit. and shove it. If I don't, if I, if yeah. you're, my right. boss is not only keeping me alive, but my wife and kids, I'm gonna do what, I'm gonna do whatever he tells me to yeah, do.
1: That's right. You bet. And by the way, it, it was an. Int- I'm I'm jumping a, a little bit out of this, but this is part of that FDR story that leads up to all of it. When I was going, when I was writing my book, "The Fight for the Four Freedoms," you know what made FDR and the Greatest Generation truly great. I came across these, these collections of letters that workers, not only in northern industries, but in southern industries like the textile factories that were already becoming part of the southern landscape. Um, workers there, in many cases, didn't even have the right to vote necessarily, whether they were black or white, because of poll taxes and literacy requirements. But they would write letters to the White House. FDR received more letters than anyone had ever imagined a president receiving. And there was one letter that gets reproduced, and I found it in this one collection. This it's, it's guy writes to, the, to FDR, and he says, you know, and essentially, I love you because you're the first president who knows that my boss is a son of a bitch. Mm. <laughs> that's great
0: let's talk about the the inertia of tired ideas somebody gets us convinced of something and it just becomes received wisdom and it's unshakable for example i'm going to ask this through the prism of health insurance universal health insurance okay we were told that war is good for the economy, that Roosevelt, what really got us out of World War II was we went to war, and that the 60s, the the economy was accelerated, the accelerant of war pushed our GDP through the roof. And then when Bill Clinton became president, the Cold War just ended under George Herbert Walker Bush, and we heard something, heard something called the Peace Dividend, which nobody had ever heard before. And suddenly we're finding this raging economy because industry, all the research and development now, was being focused on things other than bombs. Unfortunately, it was the financialization of everything. That's the bad part of the peace dividend. But there is a peace dividend. When a country is at peace, you can mobilize the economy to be, even more productive and create longer lasting and better jobs isn't there a dividend to universal health insurance when people say you know three million americans are going to lose their jobs if you put the health insurance companies out of business (laughs) there's a dividend to to that isn't there
1: well of course there is i mean of course there is well first of all you're still going to need people who are going to work in some kind of healthcare in some kind of healthcare care bureaucracy that may not absorb 135 what is it how many people are going to be put out of work did
0: they say yeah, 2.5 million by the way my yeah, b- I, mean, I don't exactly, mean to interrupt you absor- my, my yeah. starting negotiating point on universal health insurance when somebody like amy klobuchar or biden says well 2.5 million people are going to lose their jobs they work in the health insurance industry my starting position is well we're going to round them up and put them in re-education camps put dunce caps on them for five years and then they're gonna march through the streets and they're gonna be pelted with rocks and called traitors. Oh, that's my starting position. Now let's negotiate. Second. You're
1: picking on the wrong people. Those those two and a half million folks are not the ones they're you know, they were only you know the old line they were only following orders.
0: Well well but that's my that's how you negotiate with uh-huh. the other side. That's my yeah. starting position. And then the CEOs of these insurance well, companies. Well, David, that's almost a be... waste
1: of time. We should also, we should re-educate them to be healthcare professionals. As long as they were the ones who were denying healthcare coverage, to healthcare uh, resources to so many people, now's the time to, to re-educate them to be healthcare professionals. You know, I nurses. think, but I,
0: I, with all due respect, Professor, and you know more than I, yes. but there needs to be more than just truth and reconciliation. If you're denying medicine to kids working yeah. and, you, and you don't have a medical degree and you're protecting the stockholders of Wellpoint. you need to be punished and shamed so this doesn't happen again because it's the banality of evil you sit in this in this office and you're on the phone and you don't get to see the people you're killing you just press buttons and say no you need to be you need to be shamed by our society
1: that's an interesting observation. So in essence, what you're saying is that, I mean, I'm thinking of World War, the end of World War II and all, those, the, all the French who had, caught, who had, what's the word, collaborated yes. or slept with the enemy, that kind of you thing. Shave their yeah, heads.
0: You shave their heads yeah, and I, march I, them I, through I the what streets. You're saying.
1: I mean, I'm not quite as violent or, or I, 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 I'm more, I'd I more like to put people to good use as opposed to, you know, abuse them. That's, That's just, my you know. starting
0: offer. My, my, my starting <laughs> offer and i my listeners are getting sick of my saying this but it's to forget the wealth tax keep your money we're taking your kids that's my starting offer
1: <laughs> oh, you're great
0: <laughs> i mean that that's how you negotiate with evil All so right. but uh well let me ask you about that for a second because i uh, i kind of distracted you henry kissinger no, that's okay. that's henry kissinger okay. That's okay. who should rot yeah. in hell but if you've seen pictures of him lately he already is uh, i i recommend that you google henry kissinger and see what he looks like and what he's living with and just the acid reflux alone is oh. yes so and he deserves it so one of the worst human beings on the planet he but he did write i believe it was his dissertation at harvard or wherever he said something oh. that uh, paul krugman wrote about and that is Europe, this is what Henry Kissinger wrote, that Europe underestimated Napoleon and they underestimated Hitler. They didn't realize what Napoleon and Hitler really wanted. And I think the problem Democrats have and have have had since Reagan is we don't quite grasp what these people truly want. What does the Republican Party, what do they really want?
1: Okay, I, I promise you I'll answer that, but I do want to make it clear that for a guy who's willing to send people to reeducation camps from health from the health insurance um, industry, you're pretty pretty sweet on the being pretty sweet about the Democrats. You're assuming that the Democrats were just plain naive about the ambitions of Republicans. Yes, and and I well think said. that I, I yeah that's very naive. Okay, um, they they went after. That,
0: look, listen. I, I mean, you know what, Professor? You're a teacher. Yeah. I'm pro. I'm pro re-education. I think we just turned this whole country into a re-education camp, and it's free. Free re-education for everybody. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but D- David, what I'm saying is that for a guy who wants re-education camp, I, I think, I-, I think you're forgetting the degree to which there were Democrats who took control of the of the Democratic Party in the 1970s and turned it exactly in the direction. That enabled the Republicans' ambitions to be realized. I mean, what the Republicans wanted, and they made it very clear, very, very clear, back in the late 60s, right through the 70s, it, it is they wanted to reduce the size of government. The way they were going to do that was they were going to reduce taxes. They were going to, because they wanted to basically limit the regulation of business. Or, as I believe, and I may be paraphrasing more than actually quoting Jimmy Carter, basically talked about liberating business when he was president. He's a Democrat, mm-hmm. okay? And he was the one who called for austerity before Reagan ever called for austerity, because Reagan wasn't even, didn't even look like he'd ever make it to the presidency.
0: And so deregulation.
1: Right. Well, and in fact, he initiated deregulation and austerity. as as we saw when he put on his, uh, what is it, cardigan sweater and sat in front of the fireplace. Um, What I'm getting at is that don't be too easy on the Democrats, but what do they want? I mean, you know, I wrote about in my book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, and I think I I use the same reference in Take Hold of Our History. Back in the 1920s, the Republicans and businesses made it pretty clear that they – you know, they believed in America. They talked about 100% Americanism. But what they wanted was they wanted to freeze America. It wasn't that they were going to undo American democratic life. And keep in mind, American democratic life, even then was pretty restricted when you think about the fact that both poor black workers and poor white workers and sharecroppers in the South were basically just disfranchised. Just, just um, keep in mind, as well, that... Um, Women had only just then secured the right to vote. Uh, Keep in mind, the voting age itself, I believe, was 21, and we now have an 18-year-old. So democracy, even then, thinking strictly in terms of voting, was limited. But the point was, they didn't want democracy to expand, because they knew that workers wanted to expand democracy. We don't often think about it in these terms, but workers wanted the right to organize, and they wanted the power to collectively bargain. In other words, they wanted industrial democracy. And corporations and Republicans and many, most Democrats absolutely opposed that. So it wasn't that they wanted to turn back democracy in the 20s. They just didn't want any more of it, you might say.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Well, similarly, if you look back at the 70s, the the Republicans and the Democrats who signed on with them in things like the Trilateral Commission report of 1974-75 that NYU published, it's they're not saying that we should end democracy. Those folks, the corporate elite and their political partners, they were saying we need to reduce the excess of democracy. We need to limit democracy. We need to temper democracy. Okay. So what they want is they want to put a straitjacket on American democratic life. Now, the Republicans today are even are even more. They're even. They're, I mean, literally reactionaries. They're prepared to push back even the reforms of the 60s. Okay, the Voting Rights Act is a pain in the ass to Republicans. So they go around the Voting Rights Act when they can't use the Supreme Court to lift elements of it by passing these voter IDs, making it difficult for working people poor, working poor people, or the elderly, and students. I mean, this is the thing I always tell my students. When you hear about the Voting Rights Act, and when you now hear about voter suppression, don't think they're referring to poor folks don't think they're referring to people of color they're referring to you too they do not want you to vote and they and the voter ID policy that uh, and laws that were, were were enacted were to keep you from voting because they figured most of you were going to vote for Democrats so you know I mean what they want these Republicans these re, once upon a time conservatives and now evidently reactionaries is they just literally want to put a cap on democracy and at the edges they want to re- to reduce it and reduce it and reduce it now if you talk to the think tank people that supply ideas to these folks they couldn't give a shit about democracy right those folks would put individualism before democracy i mean libertarians it gives them a, that gives them a good sounding name but these libertarians who have influenced these
2: objectives who are themselves
1: What's that?
0: The objectivists, the Ayn Rands.
1: Yeah, of the I mean, yeah, yeah they, they, they think individualism is everything. Right. Okay, they, they don't use the word freedom, they use the word liberty as a throwback to the idea of the 18th century individualism of, uh, of the elites. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not just in a class war from above. This has involved 45 years of besieging and assailing and assaulting the rights of working people in the workplace, the rights of women to control their own bodies, the rights of, working, of, of people of color to be full citizens in this country, and even prepared, literally prepared, to keep students from voting, as we've seen for the last, ooh, now is it 10 years and more. Right. And I live in a state where it really was evident. When, when the Republicans took power in 19, and sorry, 2011, Having right. I mean, won in 2010 when the Democrats had the shit kicked out of them uh, because of Obama's utter failures as, as president the first two years. Um, I know ACA, but that was, you know, that, that should have been far more than it was. And, and it was a gigantic gift, as you and I both know, to, to uh, the pharmaceutical so industry. It was a Republican sure plan. It
0: was, it was the yeah, Republican. And
1: that, yeah, and a conservative Republican plan, yes. as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it's the case that... When they passed the voter, the voter ID thing, students all of a sudden realized that they might not get to vote, and then all of a sudden they had, you know, they had to mobilize, they had to demand, and and even uh, the oddest thing is, is that when they finally could use their student IDs, because they're official state IDs, they would show up at the polling booth, say on my own campus, and discover that there was a long, long line because there were weren't enough voting machines, and the long, long lines were reminiscent of the vision of those. TV images where where African Americans and other working people are online trying to vote after the voting you know voting places have right. closed you know, right. those images so yeah, when, no, you, when it's, you push it's a war on democracy yeah it's a war on
0: democracy when you push rugged individualism, that promotes tribalism because nobody can do it by themselves. They realize they need some help, but they're not willing to turn to the country writ large so they depend on their tribe and oh yeah it, it's right that's yeah. why it's so dangerous
1: yeah to push. yeah well they're, they're because right we're at a moment now which is just uh just this <laughs> is it, both a moment what was that thing from uh tale of two cities these are the,
2: the best of times worst of times
1: best of times the worst of times yeah. And in that I, sense, I just read the
0: best. I could. I read these are the best of times, and then I lost interest. I don't remember the rest of the book.
1: <laughs> okay. That's a good point. Well, in fact, I can't yet say these are the best of times. Far from it. But there, but I, I do think I do think we have opportunities. I'm not I'm not confident that that these can become the best of times. But I do feel I do feel that things are happening. And the the question right now is not only what the Republicans do, it's whether or not the Democrats are willing to respond to the will of the people. Or are they prepared prepared to fight like hell to get Biden in as the nominee, or failing Biden the the likes of Buttigieg? And hell, I'd vote for Biden before I'd vote for Buttigieg.
0: Oh, amen. Well, we're talking with Professor Harvey J.K. He is the author of several books, one of which is... Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. It's published by Zero Books. It's a great read. It's written for the layman and the Feldman, and you should pick it up wherever fine books are sold. Before you go, and thank you for doing this. It's just so invigorating. Yeah, just if I
1: could just say, I'm, thank you very much for for mentioning the books, and I really do hope people pick it up. It's not to be too hard sell, but it really is, it's in paperback, which makes it decidedly Low-priced read, yeah. and uh, and I would add, if anybody wants to contact me, on I'm very readily available on Twitter at Harvey J K K A Y E. Yes,
0: and your tweets are great. Before you go, we have the Iowa caucuses February third. We have the New mm-hmm. Hampshire primaries February eleventh. The polling shows that Bernie is leading big time in New Hampshire, and he's mm. in second place in Iowa. All of a sudden, we're seeing President Bernie Sanders. People are saying President Bernie yeah. Sanders. All of a sudden, the mainstream media, I always—I I say that they've discovered number yep. two. They always say mm-hmm. Biden lead, uh, number one. And then third, it's Elizabeth Warren. And they've just completely forgotten that there's a number two. And it's Bernie Sanders who's anything but number yeah. two. So... Yeah. What do you see as, I, I think, first tell me what you see as his chances. What do you see of his chances of getting the nomination, of winning the presidency? And then when the forces are aligned against him, there's, Helene Olin does this show all the time. She writes for the Washington Post. Yes, and I
1: always enjoy hearing her. I, when I listen yes. to your show myself, I always enjoy hearing yeah, her. In fact, she... I, as a consequence, I reached out to her so that she and I would be in in some kind of contact. Yeah, I, she's
0: great. Yeah. And she talks about this new we can't do spirit, the new can't do spirit in America.
1: Yes, I remember that, yeah.
0: So so many people I speak with say, I love Bernie Sanders, I'm going to vote for him, but they're going to,
1: they're,
0: he can't accomplish this.
1: What do you say to those people? How un-American can you get? Yes, How un-American can you get when you could say I I like Bernie Sanders, but I'm not even sure he can get elected. And if he does get elected, what can he accomplish? I mean, give me a break. How un-American can you get? Okay, you really you really want the likes of Trump for four more years, or you really want another neoliberal to become president and suffer? And by the way, my fear is that if another neoliberal Democrat becomes president, then people are going to get even angrier next time around. Donald Trump will seem, seem mild compared to the shithead we get.
0: Yeah. And speaking of shitheads, and by comparing Joe Biden to a shithead, it's doing a disservice to feces, which, you know, is, you know, we can't live without feces in, in our uh, soil or in our food over <laughs> uh, Chick-fil-A.
1: Wait as long as I saying that, Wait, a second. I, gotta, I just got to say one more thing. I don't know if I've ever said this on the show before. Once upon a time, I actually liked Joe Biden. I want to make this clear, okay? He, because, but for the weirdest reason, he was caught plagiarizing. Now, I don't like plagiarism. I'm a professor, okay? Mm-hmm. But he was plagiarizing somebody who I kind of liked. He was plagiarizing a British Labor Party. Neil leader, Kinnick. Neil Kinnock. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, hey, at least he's quoting somebody I like, right, right. when he's plagiarizing them.
0: Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh... During the debates, Joe Biden loves to say, and this, I I get so, you know, I've got this cold, but this just gets, this cleans out my sinuses. I get so angry. Joe Biden says, this is America. We can do anything, anything we put our mind to. So let's have a public option. Go slowly on Medicare for all. Yeah, we'll try it out. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) eh, Mm F, Yeah. Well, Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical. Again, it's published by Zero Books. Other great books include The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. We need to really go back and study Franklin Delano Roosevelt, because if you want to know what we're in store for, it's prologue to Bernie. And you are optimistic with Bernie, aren't you?
1: I, I am optimistic, yes. And, but I'll be even more optimistic if you go order some chicken soup and get better.
0: Thank you. Professor Harvey J.K., can you stay on the line for one quick second, Professor?
1: Sure. Thank you.